we go. Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Make Us Wine radio show. I am Hope Katz Gibbs, the co-host and producer of the show on the Incandescent Radio Network. I'm also the publisher of Incandescent Women magazine, which is the hook for this. And I am thrilled to introduce you to Jim Morris, who is the wine guy in Napa, California. He has a big job as a VP at Charles Krug Winery, the oldest winery in Napa, which I had the privilege of checking out and watching a movie on the lawn with Mrs. Mondavi. It's one of the Mondavi wineries. And Jim and I have been friends for a long time. And today we are doing the first episode of what we know and hope will be an educational, fun, and really informative show about the women who make us wine in Napa and beyond. So I'm going to throw it over to Jim. Introduce yourself, sir. Hi, Hope. Thanks so much for inviting me along on this very cool journey. Uh, my name is Jim Morris, and I have the coolest job in the world. As uh, it says, the vice president of guest relations uh, on my business card, but I like to say chief evangelist, or I, as I like to remind my staff, we get paid to talk about adult beverages for a living. So, and when Hope asked me to join her on this podcast, I really wanted to explore not just women winemakers or women winery owners, but there are so many women in the wine business period um, that have really fascinating, compelling stories. So one of the things that people might know me for is, is that I'm fairly active in social media and have a huge network of people that I have absolutely loved getting to meet over the years. And some of the most fascinating uh, women in the wine business or the world period, I've met through uh, these channels. So this was like a natural fit for me. It's like I wanted to, you know, help hope with her endeavors and thought this was a great topic. And I mean, who doesn't like talking about wine? And so that's why I'm here and look forward to seeing what we do from here. Yes, me too. We have an amazing lineup already. Uh, just name name off some of the people that you have on our guest wish list. Eleanor Roosevelt <laughs> was high on my list. She was quite a teetotaler herself, but uh, but loved wine. Was an advocate of wine. No, um, so when Hope asked me to put this list together, I, a lot of them were not winemakers. Um, a lot of them were really fascinating people that I have met in the wine business that are responsible for bringing us wine or teaching us about wine or creating wine or selling wine. Um, so among those, some of my favorite people in the world, and I haven't asked them yet, but they'll do it, um, it include Leslie Sabraco. She does wine spots for the Today Show and for um, Leslie Sabraco Wine and for PBS. There's another friend of mine uh, named Julie Schreiber who is a certified mycologist. She's a winemaker. She made wine uh, for Yao Ming, a very famous basketball player for his winery in China. Um, there's a woman named Brene Royal, who's the vineyard manager for one of the most famous vineyards in the world, the Monteroso Vineyard from, and uh, she works with Gallo. And just a number of women executives and just women that I have met throughout the, the, my my 20 year stay in the wine business. So it's going to be really cool and will be topical. It'll be fun. Some of it will be serious. Some of it will be uh, whatever we want to do. It will always involve wine. And so I, I do want to start off by toasting my partner and cohort. And I, I love the opportunity to do this with you, Hope. So 
I raise a glass of uh, Napa Valley Chardonnay. And I have a fine champagne flute full of Walgreens club soda. <laughs> 10 o'clock. Uh, you're hit it hard early. <laughs> yes, but it is New Year's Eve. Yes. And so to Jim, I'm very excited. So we'll we'll toast in the beginning. We'll toast at the end. Lithium. Kind of what the incandescent group is focused on. Absolutely. Um, 2021 is really exciting for everyone. I think the drama and trauma of 2020 has settled in and we know like the bad stuff. So now we get to focus on acceptance, right? Which is like that last phase of grief and moving forward. And so here in New Mexico, where I've headquartered the company as of July, 2020, we're launching all kinds of new radio shows. And this one, of course, is one of them. And the Mandavi sisters hopefully will be on that list since that there are some of the folks that you work for mm-hmm. and some other women. And, you know, as Jim said, we're going to talk to sommeliers. Um, there's a huge uh, revolution going on in that industry with the women just really having a bigger voice in this male-dominated uh, industry and, and male-dominated in general. I think when we think of winemakers, we think of men. So I'm just thrilled to give voice to these fantastic women who um, are doing something remarkable. I mean, winemaking is farming and chemistry and um, sales and marketing and just everything under the sun, you know, and it's joyful. So one of the things that Jim and I are really excited about too is potentially doing wine tasting during these episodes. So we're going to try and figure out how we can get you to taste the women's wine that we're interviewing. So that's just some of the cool stuff coming. But I want to I want to circle back around to your 20 years in the wine business. Tell us about how you got into it, what it's been like, how it's changed. It hasn't changed at all. 20 years. <laughs> no, it's, it's honestly it's crazy. I I I I spent the first 20 years of my professional life in the printing business and just was like a typical great employee i worked my way up the company ladder and i kept you know and and i enjoyed what i was doing and then all of a sudden computers came along that shows how old i am and uh all of a sudden paper wasn't really needed anymore so i lived in sonoma county at the time i still live in healdsburg and i looked around me and it's like god i see all these people that are in the wine business looks like a fun industry so a very good friend of mine um uh, named Paul Tinknell and his wife uh, Jennifer brought me aboard as a you know a low-paid intern um, at their firm Tinknell and Tinknell and I, I didn't know what the heck I was doing I knew nothing about anything but they basically taught me as we went along and in the two plus years that I was there worked on some of the coolest projects that are still I uh, helped formulate who I am today um, I, I was on the team that helped create black box wines, which everybody I'm sure has seen out there. It's still the exact same sign, size and style and everything that we created in the office uh, 20 years ago. Um, I, you know, I worked with some great wine uh, wineries to help build out their websites and help find them uh, distribution. And, uh, and then I also began to work, you know, work the market and help. Uh, a couple of wineries in local sales and then national sales. Uh, eventually landed at a smaller winery, family-owned winery called Martin Family Vineyards, which then transformed into Truett Hurst Winery and was involved with that whole, the development of a brand new winery out in Dry Creek Valley. 
they created it from the ground up. It was a and, and it was a biodynamic winery run by the I still he's still the godfather of biodynamics uh, in in the U.S. at least Paul Dolan. And then from there, I went to I became the general manager at uh, Michel Schlumberger Winery. It still is one of the more beautiful properties and beautiful wineries uh, that I've ever been to. Um, but then I also then helped create a new a new winery called St. Anne's Crossing in Sonoma. Um, and it literally, I was hired on August 1st to get it open by um, Labor Day weekend. And I, all the only thing I had was wine in a building. That was all that we had. There was no infrastructure. There was no employees. There was no computers. There was nothing. It's like, so in, by Labor Day weekend on August 28th, we opened St. Anne's Crossing. So that was, it was a wild, uh, wild journey there. Uh, we actually shared facilities with Naked Wines. And so other than having to get used to all of these people running around with no clothes, it was just a, it was a fabulous experience kind of starting a winery from the from the ground up. Uh, from there, I went to um, a super, super cool little winery called McPhail. And we got to build, we, we were in a new place called The Barlow in Sebastopol, which was, was really cool makers community. And so we built this thing from the ground. We, we're the third tenant of The Barlow and saw The Barlow really blossom and, and, and thrive. And then some turmoil at the Barlow and all of that. And so, and then McPhail sold his winery. Um, and then I moved on to another winery called uh, Flanagan Winery. Same thing that, that he was building a whole, he just bought a new facility and kind of oversaw the construction and the build out of this cool little winery. And then um, was there for a couple of years, got it up and built and hired all the people that are there and moved on to my current project it's the coolest job i've ever had um at, at charles krug winery i would never work in napa because i'm a total sonoma county snob and it you know napa was always considered the dark side uh, and now that i'm here it's like it's pretty freaking cool over here it is the oldest winery in napa it is was built in 1861 just across the street from the culinary institute uh, in saint Helena, and it has been under ownership of the Mandavi family uh, for uh, we're on the fourth generation now uh, for 77 years. Uh, I work for the third generation currently, but the members of the fourth generation that are coming in and there's a fifth generation on his way too. And, uh, and it honestly is the coolest, most creative, most exciting, vibrant uh, place that I have ever been at because I work for a management team that is visionary that, you know, we want to, our goal is to create one of the world's great wine estates. And we want to do this through, you know, becoming the cultural hub of Napa Valley through, through the, the arts, through food, through wine. Um, and so we have so many things that we had on the calendar, uh, but, but we're put, we have put back on for 2021. So I mean, that's a really long <laughs> time for me to be talking. So, but anyway, but that's my, my CV of sorts. It's very impressive, and it shows the um, the entrepreneurial spirit in the wine industry. When Charles Krug started that winery, you know he was the first one to do it, and that is a badass story. Will you talk a little bit about Charles Krug? 
Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, he um, he was actually a Prussian uh, immigrant um, who was a kind of a political refugee from Prussia. He came to the United States um, and he kind of sought his world out. He worked in the mining business uh, for a period of time, just wasn't what he wanted to do. Came to San Francisco to, it was around the gold rush time and wanted to see what was happening out here. And he met up with a guy named uh, Augustin Harasti. He was the founder of Buena Vista Winery, which is the very first winery in California, uh, truly. And, and that's based in Sonoma, and it's in 1859. He was the first winemaker for Augustin. And the two of them built Buena Vista Winery, um, this beautiful old stone building that's still there. Um, but then he really kind of sought out his own, you know, his own way. And so he wanted to, he came to Napa just looking for, for land or looking to develop it. And everything at that point, all the farmland had been primary plant, primarily planted to grapes and prune, or not to prunes and apples. Um, it was mostly trees, uh, tree crops. Uh, but he thought that the ter their terroir, that, was, that wasn't really a word at the time, but he, he just thought that this area was conducive to winemaking and grapes. So he found his piece of land. Well, the land actually found him. Uh, he met a woman named Carolina Bale. Her father was one of General Vallejo, one of the founders of California. Uh, one of his uh, commandants, I think is what the term was, that he oversaw uh, several hundred thousand acres in northern Napa, Sonoma, Mendocino, Lake County. And when Charles Krug fell in love with his daughter, Carolina Bale, and they got married, she brought a dowry of 540 acres with her. And so I'm all for the whole dowry system. I think that, that should be brought back. Um, and so anyway, so the so they settled in. He built this winery. Um, and it, the original winery uh, was opened in 1861 um, and it burned down in 1872. Uh, and then they rebuilt it to the magnificent, beautiful stone structure. The stone structure remained, but the, inter the interior burned down uh, in the 1890s, and they rebuilt it a third time. He passed away not too long after that. Um, one of the things that his wife, Carolina, did was little did she know the impact of what this, this decision would do is that she dearly loved her husband and um, really wanted to leave some sort of lasting legacy. So she wrote into the covenant of the property that any wine that was produced on this property had to have Charles Krug's name on it. And so fast forward, so it was, it sat essentially as a, not really a ghost winery. They did some production during prohibition for personal, for home winemaking, but it wasn't, you know, technically Charles Krug winery at the time. It was owned by, you know, a, a wealthy family that used it as a weekend, uh, compound, so to speak. Um, but then in 1943, they sold it to the Mandavi family. And then that's where we we move forward from there. Wow. It's a great story, you know, and being in that winery, it's just so magnificent, the inside that building, and then the grounds are just breathtaking. It's vast and green, and you feel very um, put back in time 
when you're when you're there. But let's talk a little bit about some of the drama that the wineries have been dealing with with climate change and these horrible, devastating fires that you've experienced all fall. Talk a little bit about the impact of that. Well, one of the things that um, we're often asked, um, you know, either in person or on our virtual calls that we do a lot of, um, you know, how the fires affect us. And one of the things that is fascinating about the wine industry is it is an industry that has existed for thousands and thousands of years. And it has survived plagues and world wars and disease and fires and frogs and locusts and all of the other plagues that you know happen. And it continues to thrive and it continues to evolve and, and change. And not to be overly Pollyanna about it, but we'll get through this. Um, and there's been really substantial discussion by some in the wine business. In fact, the first time I did was with Paul Dolan when I was at uh, Truett Hurst. And Paul was, he was always one of the, he was one of the first wineries, he ran Fetzer Winery for many years. But he was, it was the first all organic winery in California. And Paul was always this huge advocate to grow gently and to treat the land, you know, simply. And, and he was the godfather of biodynamics in California. And I remember reading an article about 20 years ago uh, that he wrote that said, buy land in Mendocino County, which is about 60 miles north of Napa, because he goes, because with climate change, the temperatures are going to be such that Napa will slowly move to the north and that the soil conditions are the same, the, the, ter the terroir of the land is the same, and it you know, he had a lot of foresight into that. And the reality is a lot of that is true now. It's like the average temperature in Mendocino County is a little bit higher now than Napa was. And, and it's actually a perfect place to grow beautiful uh, Cabernets and heavier grapes. That being one of the many things. And, and so we're also uh, dealing with a lot of drought conditions. Um, we've had drought seven of the last 10 years. And which thankfully grapes are somewhat immune to. Um, there's there's even a farming practice that I'm sure we'll get into with one of our future winemakers um, and vineyard managers. It's called dry farming. Once the grapes are established, it's okay to turn the water off and just let whatever water uh, that Mother Nature throws our way uh, to be sufficient to grow grapes. And that actually produces a better quality grape. The sugars are more concentrated, the berries are smaller. So, you know, it's just learning to adapt to your climate conditions um, and water conditions. It takes a lot of water to get the grapes established. A lot of uh, wineries will use water to fatten up their grapes or something like that. It's, it's a little technique that they use right before harvest that ups their tonnage, but don't let the winemakers know that. Um, you know, but then the fires too. It's like, uh, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, in Mendocino County as a kid and during the summer fires were common, but they used to have what they would call control burns all the time. And it really was to remove all of the underbrush so that when forest fires actually happened, they wouldn't go up into the canopy. And it's the canopy fires that have been so dangerous and so deadly for Californians, without clearing out all the underbrush, um, 
you, you've got all this fuel every year. And so this, and over the years, as you know, air quality concerns came into play, they stopped doing control burns. The forest got really thick and filled with fuel. So now fires are almost a way of life. And the really bad, you know, the first bad smoky year that I remember was 2008 up in Anderson Valley. And Anderson Valley is a beautiful area in Mendocino County that's renowned for Pinot and Chardonnay. And Pinot and Chardonnay are, have very thin skins. And when the fires were on both sides of the valley, uh, the smoke just settled in and there was no wind to clear everything out. And the grapes just absorbed the smoke. And it literally ruined, you know, tens of thousands of, of vines, you know, at least the harvest that year. Um, a lot of people that hadn't picked couldn't pick. And um, so 2008 was the first real kind of warning shot that we, we experienced. Then 2000, I think it was 17, was the first major fire in Sonoma County and in Napa as well. And there was it was later in the year, so a lot of the grapes had been harvested, but some of those that hadn't um, were still on the vine and got real got smoked and it's not a good smoke like barbecue smoke it's a it's an ashtray type smoke so when you pick the grapes crush it ferment it turn it into wine it tastes like wet ashtray and so and so there's a lot of ways to mitigate that too and but this is where winemakers earn their keep because 2017 there were smoke 2018 uh, even though the fires were about 200 miles away from us the smoke was worse in 2018 uh, than it was in 2017 because it, the wind patterns brought it down and the smoke just settled in our valley. Um, same thing, so 2020 happened and there's literally fire just on both sides of Napa Valley, on both sides of Sonoma County, and, and it was really early in the season, which just sucked. Um, I mean, it's just... <laughs> And, you know, we've been evacuated multiple times this year uh, on top of everything else. And um, but in the smoke was really heavy And the smoke, even in Napa Valley, came from one side of the valley to the other. And it was fascinating because a lot of winemakers chose not to even pick grapes this year. It pains me to drive up and down the valleys and still see today, you know, vines still filled with with grapes that weren't picked. They have to do something with them because the vines need to stop and go in dormancy and then um, so they can then rebud. But uh, that's a whole nother. That's a that's a vineyard manager segment that we'll get into. But So, again, this is where winemakers learn their craft and learn how to mitigate issues and flaws and things like that in the wine. Um, and one of the things people are drinking 2017s now. And at the time, in 2017, people were writing about, oh, this vintage is ruined. Nobody's going to make good wine. So, that, well, at Charles Krug, my employer, um, shameless plug, our 2017s, uh, five of our six wines got 91 points or higher. And it tastes magnificent. And this is where our winemaker really, you know, she, she earned her keep on this, is that how do you mitigate that? Well, some of it you change the blends a little bit or you blend the smoky grapes in with not smoky grapes or something like that so there's ways to you know the winemaking skills really can oversee a lot of flaws so 
we won't make a wine that does taste smoky uh, however so if there's one that ever comes out of this vintage it, it won't see the light of day and you make some delicious wine i'm I don't drink red because it makes me like want to dance on the table. So I avoid that. But, um, but this couple of sips I've had, have just been magnificent. Uh, we, I had the privilege of doing a, attending a wine dinner with you in California. And it's just really cool to watch people love that wine and just love wine in general, of course. But um, in this show, we'll also talk about sort of the downside of, of drinking. I think um, there was a story in the New York times about wine moms. And I want to address that topic, you know, why women are drinking so much right now, uh, especially um, because, you know, it's not just stop that it's let's deal with the issues underneath of it. And that's not really the focus of our show, but I definitely want to talk about all aspects of this wonderful business, which is just fascinating to me. And I think fascinating to a lot of people. I'm look, I, I can't wait. And, and so I, I, I did while we were talking earlier, I did pull up some of the other, the, people that I wanted to bring on because it is, this is such a really cool time. Um, and it's, there's so many fascinating women in this business. And I'm going to add to the list that I talked about. One of them is going to be Tracy Dutton. She was the former wine director at the Culinary Institute of America for about 20 years, where she taught the wine study courses. Um, another friend of mine named Shayla Varnado, who's the founder of Black Girls Wine. And, you know, it's a long overlooked segment of the businesses that it's like African-Americans, um, Hispanics, um, Asian-Americans, they're all lovers of wine. And, you know, the traditional marketing world has kind of overlooked those groups. And so they're saying, listen, our voice needs to be heard. And so she's done an amazing job with that. Um, another one is a, a friend of mine who's, she's an Inuit Indian from Alaska, but one of the most fascinating wine people I have ever met, the name uh, Elaine Chukin Brown. And you can follow her under Hawk Waka Waka um, on all social media. So she's an absolutely fascinating um, person as well. You know, there's a handful of other, uh, there's Hispanic wine winery owners that are also women that uh, I know that do an amazing job. And one of them, this will be a lot a lot of fun to do this one as well, is uh, Pam Bacigalupi. Her family has owned the vineyard that the wine, the grapes were so sourced from for the judgment of Paris in 1974. Wow. And, and she, she's fifth generation now owner and she and her daughters are, you know, are, are amazing people and i there there are three generations that still run the vineyards and their winery now um so they're super cool so a lot of cool stories out there yeah it's going to be fascinating and in fact shala um i we went tony farmer who's the co-host of or the host of the black lives matter radio show that we also produced we want to interview black women and wine and all women and wine and all women enjoy, right? Because that's sort of what this conjures up. This is what we go to, not just to kind of like, um, just always to celebrate, you know, sometimes to hide, sometimes to numb, but always to celebrate life. And that is just sort of how I see you, Jim Morris. You are a celebrator of life. <laughs> so I'm thrilled to be doing this show with you. I'm honored to be here and I'm hum humbled by your words. I'm nearing 40 and as I near my 
my middle 40 years, uh, it's like you do have to live life every day and as full as you can with great enthusiasm. And even if you don't feel like it, you just got to show up. And I'm just blessed that I get to do it in the adult beverage business. So, and, <laughs> you know, and as I like to say, everything in moderation. Uh, and, you know, I'm a huge advocate of drinking responsibly. So this is going to be a fun, fun ride. And I look it forward is. to it. It always is, right? And cheers to 2021 and to dear good friends and to Charles Krug Winery, who uh, inspired all of this. And to all of our coming viewers and guests, we drink to you today, Club Soda, here in Las Cruces, New Mexico. But looking forward to so much good things and really... Uh, my motto is I love my life and here's to everyone loving their lives. All right. You are listening to the women who make us wine radio show and also a TV show on our YouTube channel, incandescent.tv. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, co-host of this show and producer of all the incandescent love. So here's to you all. We will see you again in 2021. Happy new year. <laughs>